Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Religion, Reality or Substitute by C.S. Lewis Part 2 From all this, I want to draw the following conclusion. Introspection is of no use at all in deciding which of two experiences is a substitute or a second best. At a certain stage, all those sensations which we should expect to find accompanying the proper satisfaction of a fundamental need will actually accompany the substitute, and vice versa. And I want to insist that if we are once convinced of this principle, we should then hold it quite unflinchingly from this moment to the end of our lives. When a witness has once been proved unreliable, turn him out of the court. It is mere waste of time to go sneaking back to his evidence and thinking, after all, he did say, if immediate feeling has shown itself quite worthless in this matter, then let us never listen to immediate feeling again. If our criterion between a real and a substituted satisfaction must be sought somewhere else, then in God's name, seek it somewhere else. When I say somewhere else, I am not yet speaking of faith or a supernatural gift. What I mean can be shown by an example. If those two bad boys had really wanted to find out whether their view of cigars and cigarettes were correct, there were various things they might have done. They might have asked a grown-up, who would have told them that cigars were actually regarded as the greater luxury of the two, and thus had their error corrected by authority. Or they might have found out by their own researches, that is, by buying their smokes instead of stealing them, that cigars were more expensive than cigarettes, and thence inferred that they could not in reality be a mere substitute for them. This would have been correction by reason. Finally, they might have practiced obedience, honesty, and truthfulness, and waited till an age at which they were allowed to smoke, in which case they would have arrived at a more reasonable view about these two ways of preparing tobacco by experience. Authority, reason, experience. On these three, Mixed in varying proportions, all our knowledge depends. The authority of many wise men in many different times and places forbids me to regard the spiritual world as an illusion. My reason, showing me the apparently insoluble difficulties of materialism and proving that the hypothesis of a spiritual world covers far more of the facts with far fewer assumptions, forbids me again. My experience, even of such feeble attempts as I have made to live the spiritual life, does not lead to the result which the pursuit of an illusion ordinarily leads to, and therefore forbids me yet again. I am not now saying that no one's reason and no one's experience produce different results. I am only trying to put the whole problem the right way round, to make it clear that the value given to the testimony of any feeling must depend on our whole philosophy, not our whole philosophy on a feeling. 
If those who deny the spiritual world prove their case on general grounds, then, indeed, it will follow that our apparently spiritual experiences must be an illusion. But equally, if we are right, it will follow that they are the prime reality and that our natural experiences are a second best. And let us note that whichever view we embrace, mere feeling will continue to assault our conviction. Just as the Christian has his moments when the clamor of this visible and audible world is so persistent and the whisper of the spiritual world so faint that faith and reason can hardly stick to their guns. So, as I well remember, the atheist, too, has his moments of shuddering misgiving, of an all but irresistible suspicion that old tales may, after all, be true. That something or someone, from outside, may at any moment break into his neat, explicable, mechanical universe. Believe in God, and you will have to face hours when it seems obvious that this material world is the only reality. Disbelieve in him, and you must face hours when this material world seems to shout at you that it is not all. No conviction religious or irreligious, will, of itself, end once and for all this fifth columnist in the soul. Only the practice of faith, resulting in the habit of faith, will gradually do that. Have we now got to a position from which we can talk about faith without being misunderstood? For in general, we are shy of speaking plain about faith as a virtue. It looks so like praising an intention to believe what you want to believe in the face of evidence to the contrary. The American in the old story defined faith as, quote, the power of believing what we know to be untrue. Now, I define faith as the power of continuing to believe what we once honestly thought to be true until cogent reasons for honestly changing our minds are brought before us. The difficulty of such continuing to believe is constantly ignored or misunderstood in discussions of this subject. It is always assumed that the difficulties of faith are intellectual difficulties, that a man who has once accepted a certain proposition will automatically go on believing it till real grounds for disbelief occur. Nothing could be more superficial. How many of the freshmen who come up to Oxford from religious homes and lose their Christianity in the first year have been honestly argued out of it? How many of our own sudden temporary losses of faith have a rational basis which would stand examination for a moment? I don't know how it is with others, but I find that mere change of scene always has a tendency to decrease my faith at first. God is less credible when I pray in a hotel bedroom than when I am in college. The society of unbelievers makes faith harder, even when they are people whose opinions on any other subject are known to be worthless. These irrational fluctuations in belief are not peculiar to religious belief. They are happening about all our beliefs all day long. Haven't you noticed it with our thoughts about the war? Some days, of course, there is really good or really bad news, which gives us rational grounds for increased optimism or pessimism. 
but everyone must have experienced days in which we are caught up in a great wave of confidence or down into a trough of anxiety, though there are no new grounds either for the one or the other. Of course, once the mood is on us, we find reasons soon enough. We say that we've been thinking it over, but it is pretty plain that the mood has created the reasons and not vice versa. But there are examples closer to the Christian problem even than these. There are things, say in learning to swim or to climb, which look dangerous and aren't. Your instructor tells you it's safe. You have good reason from past experience to trust him. Perhaps you can even see for yourself, by your own reason, that it is safe. But the crucial question is, Will you be able to go on believing this when you actually see the cliff edge below you or actually feel yourself unsupported in the water? You will have no rational grounds for disbelieving. It is your senses and your imagination that are going to attack belief. Here, as in the New Testament, the conflict is not between faith and reason, but between faith and sight. We can face things which we know to be dangerous if they don't look or sound too dangerous. Our real trouble is often with things we know to be safe, but which look dreadful. Our faith in Christ wavers not so much when real arguments come against it as when it looks improbable. When the whole world takes on that desolate look, which really tells us much more about the state of our passions and even our digestion, than about reality. When we exhort people to faith as a virtue, to the settled intention of continuing to believe certain things, we are not exhorting them to fight against reason. The intention of continuing to believe is required because, though reason is divine, human reasoners are not. When once passion takes part in the game, the human reason unassisted by grace, has about as much chance of retaining its hold on truths already gained as a snowflake has of retaining its consistency in the mouth of a blast furnace. The sort of arguments against Christianity which our reason can be persuaded to accept at the moment of yielding to temptation are often preposterous. Reason may win truths. Without faith, she will retain them just so long as Satan pleases. There is nothing we cannot be made to believe or disbelieve. If we wish to be rational, not now and then, but constantly, we must pray for the gift of faith, for the power to go on believing not in the teeth of reason, but in the teeth of lust and terror and jealousy and boredom and indifference, that which reason, authority, or experience, or all three, have once delivered to us for truth. And the answer to that prayer will, perhaps, surprise us when it comes. For I am not sure, after all, whether one of the causes of our weak faith is not a secret wish that our faith should not be very strong. Is there some reservation in our minds? Some fear of what it might be like if our religion became quite real? I hope not. God help us all and forgive us. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. 
Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.